this uh, letter of Peter. And we'll pick things up in verse chapter one, verse 22 and uh, read through chapter two, verse three. And uh, in verse 22, we've already looked at that the last time we were together. So I'm not having an episode of any kind. Uh, we want to he's been dealing with holiness, love for the brethren. But he also wants to address the word of God, which is what we'll be looking at this morning. Verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And certainly as Christians, we have tasted that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all of the holiness that is wrapped up in you. All of the different ways that you have given us to access Holiness and to partake of it. We live in a world, Lord, that is just filled with so much carnality and sin and temptation. And it's always been like that. And it is to this day. And we've been exposed to enough of that this week. We've come here, Lord, to just be completely absorbed and and filled and partaking fully of holiness. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this room this morning. And we pray, Lord, that between the two of them, that their work in our lives would produce an even greater measure of holiness and Christlikeness in each one of our lives. Thank you for the privilege of holiness and living a holy life. And we thank you in the name of the one who has made it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Peter wrote this first epistle to a group of Christians who were in the midst of great trial, great difficulty, and even great suffering. And the Christians who weren't currently in the middle of this great persecution and suffering were going to be facing it very, very shortly in their lives. And so he writes this letter to them in order to provide them with three things. Number one, with encouragement. Number two, to give uh, to provide them an eternal perspective in the middle of that suffering, a biblical perspective. And then number three, to provide them and us with just practical instruction that we need when we're in the middle of uh, trials of this kind of depth and and difficulties of this magnitude. And in the passage before us this morning, Peter speaks to us of the vital place that the word of God plays in a Christian's life. And he focuses on two areas in particular. First, by reminding us 
of the place that the word of God played in our salvation. And then second, instructing us concerning the place that this word is to play in our spiritual lives once we have become Christians and the impact it's to have upon our spiritual growth. So we notice in chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, the place of the word of God in our salvation. And in verse 23, Peter again uses this term, born again. He used it earlier in the chapter. In verse 3, where he described us as Christians as being those who have been uh, begotten again unto a living hope. And again, literally, born again unto a living hope. Born again is a Jesus term. Jesus is the one who spoke it. Uh, Peter is merely borrowing it. He is merely repeating uh, a phrase that Jesus introduced into human history. When he was speaking, as is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 3, to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, one of the most religious, righteous men in the entire nation of Israel at the time. And he spoke to Nicodemus as Nicodemus is seeking what Jesus has and and a greater understanding of Jesus' teaching. And Jesus spoke to Nicodemus No matter how religious he was, no matter how great he was and how righteous he was in terms of his self-righteousness, that he still needed to be born again. And Jesus, we're told in that passage, said to him, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused by this. And he said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born And Jesus answered him and said, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, what does it mean to be born again? It's... Being born again speaks of a spiritual birth. And it begins in our lives when the word of God, and specifically the gospel, is preached to us as sinners. Where somebody ultimately informs us of our sinful condition in the eyes of the Lord. That he esteems all of us, no matter how good or how bad we are, all of us to be sinners. Because all of us have sinned. All of us have been imperfect and have sinned at least once in our life. And as a result of that sin, though, listen, don't glom onto that and say, yeah, that's me. I just sinned once in my life. We sin on a daily basis, all of us. But that's a different sermon. But, but we come, become aware of God's assessment of us as sinners and of our need of a Savior. And it's the same Bible that also then introduces us to the Savior that God has provided sinners with in order to be forgiven of our sins. And that Savior is Jesus. And the same Bible also tells us how it is that we can accept or 
receive this salvation into our lives and that it occurs by simply putting our faith or our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the way of salvation. It is a powerful salvation, not because it's complex. A child can understand it. But it is a powerful salvation because it is the way that God has chosen to forgive and to save mankind. And as that gospel was presented to each one of us that are Christians, that word of God preached to us, the Holy Spirit in some way testified to the truth of it in our heart and in our minds. And as we take heed to his witness, we then surrender our lives to God, put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes into our life and we are born again by the Holy Spirit. We experience a spiritual birth and now we have the capacity for a relationship with God. And it is in this way we begin that relationship with God. Jesus put it perhaps more simply in in John 3.16 and speaking to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world. That's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him or trust in him should not perish as a result of our sins, but have everlasting life. We receive this salvation and we receive this spiritual birth by putting our faith in Jesus as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, notice in verses 23 and 24 that Peter contrasts the physical birth With the spiritual birth, he tells us that our physical birth involved corruptible seed. You say, what in the world does that mean that it corruptible seed? In other words, each one of us as human beings were conceived and born as a result of the union of two very fallen descendants of Adam and Eve. And thus, when we are born into this world. We are born to die. Our physical birth gives us life, but it also dooms us to death. The spiritual birth, he tells us, is the product of incorruptible seed, the word of God, communicating that this spiritual life begun in us will live on as long as the word of God lives on, which is forever because it will never know death. It will never end. The word of God is eternal. Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And the life that God gives us is as eternal as that word. An eternal word has united us to an eternal life. No one is ever saved apart from the involvement of the word of God in some way. So if for no other reason than that we owe our salvation, our eternal salvation to the word of God, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, every Christian has a reason for esteeming the word of God very, very highly. Now, in our salvation and indescribably wonderful and priceless miracle has occurred to be born again at God's invitation is the greatest thing that a human being can avail themselves of to be born again 
to have a spiritual birth and begin a personal relationship with God is the greatest miracle that a human life can experience. Greater than any other miracle that's described in the scriptures in terms of God dealing with man. Because even when Jesus raised people from the dead, it was just that they would then die again another day. The reason the miracle of everlasting life and a spiritual birth is the uniquely great thing that it is, is that it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. So every other miracle in life pales in comparison because this born again miracle has eternal consequences. Peter then quotes in verses 24 and 25. A passage from Isaiah chapter 40. And in essence, he declares that human life is as impermanent as grass. It's here for a season, then it's gone. And that's just the way it is. Life comes and goes. You think about how few people we remember in life. We remember a few people right around us in our own generation. We remember parents. We remember loved ones. We remember friends. But think about how few people are remembered in human history. Take the United States of America. You have more men and women who have lived unbelievably great lives related to this nation and and sacrificed their life and did great things and discovered great things and accomplished great things. And we come out of 12 years of public education Uh, Most of us, and we know two names, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And almost everyone else is forgotten. That's just the way it is. Human life is as impermanent as grass, here for a season and then gone. But he also is saying that physical beauty, strength, power, otherwise known as muscles, (laughs) are as short-lived As the flowers of the grass, the flowers, they ultimately droop and they die. You ever go into somebody, somebody's home and they're very, very elderly and you're looking around in their house and they're somewhere on a shelf or something. You see a picture of them on their wedding day or when they were a teenager and you say, is that you? (laughs) They can hardly believe that the person that they're talking to was once 15 and 18 and 20 and 22 because the bloom goes off the rose. It's just the way that it happens. But in contrast to all of that, the word of God and the promises of God, they endure forever, as does everyone who puts their trust in them for salvation. Next, I want us to notice In chapter two, verses two and three, the place of the word of God in our spiritual growth. Once we have become Christians, the word of God not only brings us into salvation, the forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. But after we become Christians, it helps us now to grow in that relationship and that word grow there. In uh, verse two, I'm not saying you should, uh, you know, uh, encircle it with ink, but you wouldn't do any harm by doing that. This is one of the main points of the passage, but certainly to recognize it with your own eyes there is a very important word in the passage. 
Once we've been born again spiritually, now we need to grow into spiritual maturity in the same way that just as we are born physically. Now, what happens after that physical birth is the need to now grow into a physical maturity. Now, there is a legitimate state of infancy in a child where when a child is born and in those early months, they're completely dependent upon everyone else to meet their needs. They need to be fed by someone else. Somebody else has to change their diapers. We put them to sleep in cribs and and so forth. But ultimately, that child will mature. They learn how to feed themselves. They no longer need diapers. They graduate from the crib into a bed of their own and so forth. But then there is what is known as an illegitimate infancy in a child. And that is to perhaps visit that same home and that same child 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, 25 years later, and then to walk into their room and to see them still sucking on a bottle, still wearing diapers, still lying in a crib. And if we were to walk into a scene like that, we would just think to ourselves, this is terrible. This is absolutely tragic. It would appall us to view it. For while there is a legitimate state of infancy for a child, if a person remains in that state forever, it does become a tragedy, the tragedy of a protracted state of infancy. And this occurs spiritually as well as physically, where a person is born again. And then now, five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, 25 years later, they still can't feed themselves spiritually. They're still wearing diapers. There hasn't been any significant spiritual growth in them since the day they were born again. And they are living in a tragic protracted state of infancy. Well, what's the cause of that condition? And it's a common condition. Peter identifies perhaps the greatest cause of all here in verse two. That is the failure to feed on or to internalize or to um, learn the word of God and then to obey it. Growth on any level is impossible apart from nourishment, whether we're speaking about physical growth or we're talking about spiritual growth. But we know that physical food is needed for physical growth. But what is the spiritual equivalent for spiritual nourishment? The spiritual equivalent, Peter tells us, is the word of God. Just as we need physical food for physical growth, we need to internalize the word of God for spiritual growth. So how does that happen? Well, it happens as we wake up in the morning and begin our day by reading the Bible devotionally with God and fellowship with him. As we do that, it nourishes us spiritually. It occurs as we study the Bible 
on our own to learn about a particular subject or to learn about some aspect of God or to gain perspective related to something that's happening in my life at the moment. We're nourished spiritually as a result of that study of the word of God. We're nourished spiritually in a room like this and just what's happening right now is we're being taught the word of God. There is a spiritual impact that is occurring. My spirit, my relationship with God, who I am because of God living inside of me, that is strengthened and nourished as a result of this kind of time. And the word of God is to us spiritually what milk is to a newborn babe. It gives us the nourishment that we need for spiritual growth. And just as we have to feed our bodies physically on a daily basis so we can stay strong and we can stay healthy, so too we need to feed ourselves spiritually on a daily basis in order to stay strong, healthy, and healthy spiritually. I remember hearing a saying many, many years ago in this vein that I always thought was Uh, Very, very good. And it goes like this. Seven days without the Bible makes one weak. W-E-A-K. And it's true. Just go without the Bible for seven days. You notice the difference in our lives as as that nutrition for our spirit has been removed from our lives. We notice in verse 2 the degree to which we are to desire the Word of God. He says, as newborn babes. Have you ever watched a newborn babe in search of a nipple or in search of nourishment? I remember when my twin brother and I, we have two younger sisters, and so when they were born, sometimes we would feed them. And we'd give them the bottle and uh, if, if you ever, you know, they're fussing and they're wanting food so much and you're trying to get it right to their mouth and sometimes you miss the mouth and you hit them in the cheek and that you've never seen such a head swerving. They know nutrition is somewhere right around here. The whole head begins to shake back and forth in search of uh, of that nipple. And I'll tell you, when you see that, and most of us have, in some way or another, it makes us realize what Peter is talking about here. A newborn's uh, desire for the Word of God, it's, it's frequent. It's all the time. And uh, it is very, very eager. And Peter declares that our hunger for the Word of God is to be frequent and eager as well. Well, I ask myself when I look at this and we say, all right, well, the word of God is a nutrition that brings me into spiritual maturity. But I'd sure like to know what spiritual maturity looks like. I need to know what I'm aiming at so I know whether I'm making some progress here at all in in terms of my spiritual growth. What does it look like? How can I know that I'm maturing as a Christian? Well, spiritual maturity is completely defined by one person in human history, and that's Jesus himself for the Christian. Jesus is the only one who lived the purely Christian life, and we spend our time then imitating him in the power of the Holy Spirit to live that life as well. Jesus, the Bible says concerning uh, the word of God and its relationship to Jesus, that the volume of the book, it testifies to him. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day. He said, you, uh, in speaking to them, he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. Why does the word of God nourish us the way that it does 
and uniquely uh, nourish us because this book speaks of Jesus. And that is who the Holy Spirit is designed to conform each one of our lives into. As we come, and the best way that we have to come to know Jesus is through the revelation of the Bible. The Bible is absolutely indispensable to anyone who desires to become like Jesus. There's no replacement for it. Because it's in, his, in the Bible that we learn who, what Jesus is like. Who he is, how he conducts himself in different circumstances that we find ourselves in as well. And it's where we learn how we can then conduct ourselves in a like manner as he did. And I think that becoming more like Jesus is the single greatest motivation for desiring the word of God in this way, learning the word of God in this way. You can have a lot of motivations for establishing a devotional life, a daily time in the Word of God. There can be a lot of motivations for Bible study. There can be a lot of motivations for Bible teaching. But there is no higher motivation than to explore this book and to tear into this book out of a love for my Savior and out of a desire to become more like Him as a result of that where a person looks at themselves and comes to a place in our Christian life and says, I want to know Jesus as best as I can, this side of glory, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. I want to know all of it. And I know that the greatest revelation of him is found in the word. And thus, I want to learn this Bible inside and out and up one side and down the other. That person is tapped into the highest motivation for the study and the reading of the Word of God. It's important to realize that Peter is not contrasting the milk of God's Word with the meat of God's Word, as Paul does elsewhere in the New Testament. Sometimes Paul, he would contrast the Word of God, he would describe it as milk, uh, and he would be talking about the basics of the faith that brand new Christians could understand. And then he would talk about the meat of the Word, which would be, uh, you know, more complex or deeper truths that are in the word of God. And so he gave that by the spirit of God, gave that kind of distinction. There can be a temptation then to look at this and say, uh, Peter is just talking about new Christians and the importance of the word of God in the life of a new Christian. Peter doesn't have that that in his thinking at all here as he's writing this. He's writing to all Christians, whether they're brand new, born again last week or yesterday or whether that Christian has known the Lord for long, long decades. This hunger for the word of God is to mark all of our lives. And that hunger should be there and always there. And in fact, the older we get in the Lord, it should be there with a greater and greater measure because there comes with spiritual maturity a greater and greater desire to be less like myself. And more and more like Christ. I think about the Apostle Paul in this vein. He wrote, when he wrote his epistle to the church at Philippi, he was 30 years as a Christian. 25 years in Christian service. He'd known the Lord for 30 years. Three decades. 
And yet at the end of that 30 years, he was as hungry to grow in his relationship with Jesus and in his Christ-likeness as the day he was born again. Let me read a couple passages to you from Philippians. Paul wrote and said, But what things were gained to me? These I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also cost, count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then here it is. And that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. I want to know everything about my Savior. And I want to experience everything that can be experienced this side of glory, Paul was saying. A little later in that same letter, he said, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things that are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Thirty years later, he's still pressing forward in Christ-likeness. Then I think about his letter that he wrote to Timothy just weeks and months before he was beheaded for his faith, before he died a martyr's death. He's sitting in a Roman prison and he wrote to Timothy and he said, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. In prisons in those days, they didn't give you clothes. And when winter came, they didn't give you blankets. You either got those from the outside or you didn't get them. Winter's coming, Paul said. Bring me the cloak that will help me keep warm in this place. But he wasn't through. And he said, and bring the books, especially the parchments, the writings of the Scripture. You look at Paul and here he is. He's growing in his relationship with the Lord all the way to the very end. You say, Paul, you're the Apostle Paul. How many of how? Look at what, how God has used you. Look at the revelation you have. Look at all of the things that you know. And you know that a martyr's death is out in front of you. You know it's going to be coming very, very quickly to you. Why don't you just chill and relax and be happy with what you have in God and just coast until the axe? That's not the appreciation that he had for his salvation. Or the responsibility that he felt to explore fully the life that the death of Christ had purchased for him even before he entered into heaven. And so he continued to grow to the very end. Any Christian who ceases to desire the pure milk of the word as a newborn babe is a Christian who has decided that they do not want to grow any deeper in their knowledge of the Lord. Nor to grow any deeper in their relationship with the Lord. 
because that's what's being communicated. We can only imagine the affront that this would be to the Creator coming from His creation. And such a Christian has fallen into the condition of the church of Ephesus that Jesus addressed in Revelation chapter 3 in one of his seven letters to the seven churches. Where this Christian has left their first love relationship with Jesus and has allowed someone or something else into their lives which has now supplanted Jesus as the Lord of their lives. And it can be a sin. It can be some carnality. It can be some person. It can be some new goal in life. Some new hobby. It can be a return to the self-willed life. As in, no, I, want to, I want to do with my own life what I want to do with my own life. Or it can be some other idol or master passion in life. And because we don't die Physically, when we starve ourselves spiritually by neglecting the word of God, as we would do if we denied ourselves physical food, sometimes we don't recognize the signs of spiritual malnutrition in our lives, but they're there. It begins with a loss of strength and energy. Where I find it harder and harder to resist temptations I find it harder and harder to remain disciplined spiritually I lose a spiritual self-control that the word of God feeds me to maintain in my life and pretty soon I'm saying things that I would have never dreamed that I would ever say again in my life I'm doing things that I had thought would never ever be a part of my life once again because I lack the nourishment to resist the re-entry of these things back into my life and to keep them in a place of submission to the Spirit. And so our lifestyle and our speech becomes more carnal and it becomes more worldly. And then after that, pretty soon, we become prone to disease, spiritually speaking. That sin that is infrequent, pretty soon, now it becomes habitual and becomes characteristic of our life. We grow comfortable with it. We grow comfortable with compromise. And then pretty soon, as we're nearing death, not the loss of spiritual, not the death of salvation, of the death of a personal relationship with God. And how do we know that death is nearing? Death is nearing spiritually when we don't even care anymore. During times of trial and difficulty and suffering, we need more word. We need need. More spiritual nourishment and not less. And unfortunately, during some trials, the temptation is to start to leave off time spent with the Lord to begin the day. And we look and say, there's an urgency in my marriage. 
Or I'm having, I'm in a season of great difficulty in raising a particular one of the children. Or there's tremendous demands being placed upon me by the business or at work. And we begin to think, all right, I can grab that extra hour or that half hour, whatever is being used there. And I will invest it in these other areas just for a time until the fire gets put out. And then I'll come back to that. And it's the very worst thing a person can do. And the reason is, is because you put out one fire and the devil will start another fire and another fire and another fire because the single great thing that he wants to destroy is the relationship in Christianity. And so there will always be a reason to abandon it. And it's the very worst thing to do. And Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. They will take care of themselves. God will see to it. In other words, the most important proactive thing we can do related to the problems that occur in our lives is to maintain the priority of spiritual disciplines, which includes reading the Bible and the study of the Bible, not to neglect them. Let me give you just a short sampling of what the Word of God uniquely does in a child of God. As we've seen, it feeds us spiritually, but the Bible says it also washes us. Every single day I live in this world, I get dirty in this world, and I don't even know how dirty I'm getting. Things are attaching themselves to me just by virtue of, Of the senses. My eyes are open. My ears are open. I'm in contact with people. My attitudes, my perspectives are being fashioned. I don't even know it. And then in the morning I sit down and I open up this book and I begin to read this book. And it just begins to wash me and bathe me and to take all of the dirt and all of the filth, most of which I'm not even aware of, and to wash it away from my heart and away from my mind and restore holiness to my life. The washing of water with the word is how Paul put it. The word of God sanctifies us. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth in his high priestly prayer. He said, your word is truth. The word of God sanctifies us. It makes us holy. And and because it makes us holy, it makes us like Christ. The word of God reveals God's will to us. It's the supreme way that he reveals his will to us. It is important and vital to withstanding temptation. In this world, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, how can a young man cleanse his way? That's a good question. And then he gives the answer by taking heed to thy word. He doesn't say, how shall an old man cleanse his way or an old woman cleanse her way? He takes the hardest case for holiness in the human existence, a young man. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to thy word, the place of the word of God, and producing holiness in lives that would not otherwise be holy. I think about the fact that Jesus answered the three temptations of Satan with the word of God. 
James tells us that the word of God is like a mirror to us. What does a mirror do? Gives us bad news sometimes. A mirror tells us the truth about ourselves on a physical level. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Not you, buckaroo. But the thing that the word of God does about the, the, the mirror of the word of God is, is it puts a mirror up to our minds, to our hearts, again, to our perspectives and our attitudes. And it's a mirror to what is inside of us. And it reveals that to us so that then in the privacy of our personal relationship with the Lord, we can take care of those things before they come out and do damage to other people or even damage to our reputation. How hard is it to find someone who will tell you the pure, full, unadulterated truth about you? How many people, don't shout out, how many people in your life do you have the freedom to speak to and say anything that you want to say to them or anything that they need to hear so that they don't drive their life off of a cliff and crash and burn without it jeopardizing the relationship. And because there's almost always that catch, we keep silent in our assessment of one another or speaking into one another's life and so to find the truth about ourselves and someone who will tell us that truth, that's a rare thing in life. It's so rare that it's priceless when we find it. And we find it in the word of God. And then there is also related to the word of God, the fact that it nurtures the fear of God in us, which is important. It equips us for everything we'll ever face in our Christian life and in our Christian ministry, Paul wrote in Second Timothy. It's a source for joy. Again, Psalm 119. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And the word of God is a, the key to a deep, healthy, personal relationship with Jesus. In the words of Jesus himself, he said to us as his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And on and on we could go for another hour describing what the word of God uniquely does in the life of a Christian. But just the listing of these ten things as we look at them and to realize that would be so much to abandon in a time of crisis or difficulty in our life, wouldn't it? Who could have any hope of standing in deep trial, in deep difficulty, if we didn't have those things coming into our life through the Word of God? And so Peter, he urges them and he urges us to go deep in the Word of God always, but in times of trial and suffering, to go deeper still. Sometimes people neglect a consistent time in the Word, call it a devotional life with the Lord, where I pick up my Bible in the morning to begin the day. 
And I read it not not as a ritual or not even really to gain some kind of purely intellectual or academic knowledge. But a time to just say, Lord, you're my God. This is the principal way that you speak to your children. And I want to hear everything you have to say from one end of the book to the other. And so as I read this this morning, would you speak to me? Could we just enjoy fellowship with one another as I read this revelation of yourself, this communication from you? There might be some of us in the room today where you're a new Christian or maybe you've been a Christian a long time. And because you haven't even known that maybe Christianity is a relationship and to miss the relationship is to miss absolutely everything this side of heaven. And to realize that this is supposed to be a part of our life. You say, where do I start? Where does this begin in my life? Well, Pastor Matt announced those daily breads. That's a great way to start. Those daily breads are written where there's a passage of Scripture that's written right in there. And you can look it up in your own Bible. And then it gives kind of a little devotional teaching related to that passage. In other words, it plants something spiritual in our life to begin the day so we can begin to meditate on the things of God to start the day. Because absolute carnality and sin and temptation is right out on the other side of the front door as we head out that day. So it gives us something to meditate on that's holy and of the Lord as we head into the day. And then it gives us, as he mentioned, a schedule for reading All the way through the word of God. And then to take that, something like that, a tool like that, and to sit down and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to give you the best part of the day. I'm going to spend it with you. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to meet with you in this way. And now you make this in my life what you know it needs to be in my life. And the Lord knows how to take it from there. And the Lord will never stop in the life of a Christian until that becomes the sweetest part of our Christian life until it becomes the most necessary part of our Christian life. As Jesus spoke and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It will become more important to us than breakfast, more important to us than food. Where we would literally come to a place in our life where we say, I would rather go out this front door into this world, hungry in my belly and undernourished physically than to head out into that world undernourished spiritually if I'm forced to choose between the two. And that's what he accomplishes in our life related to that, where we give up everything else. Before we give up that one thing. What if we sit here this morning. And you know all of this as a Christian. The devotional life was there and part of your life. And you understand what happens in it. But you've moved away from it. And now your life is one of neglecting the word of God in your Christian life. If I find myself in that state, where do I go from here? The first thing I need to do is to recognize the loss of appetite for the word of God in my own life. That I have no hunger for it. 
And then second, to realize how dangerous a condition that is. You go to any doctor on a physical level and you fill out the report for the annual physical and it's just changed into how about diabetes and boom, 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 boom. Always on that list, a loss of appetite. And when they see a loss of appetite, they know a healthy body, a normal body is going to have a normal appetite. Talk to me about this loss of appetite. It means something is wrong here. And then they proceed to order an entire battery of tests to discover the cause of it. They're alarmed by it. And it should alarm us as well, because a loss of appetite is a sign of ill health spiritually. And then I need to stop and I need to identify in my mind the sin, the carnality, the idolatry, the person, place or thing or the selfishness or self-will that I have allowed to dethrone Jesus in my life. What did I leave that time at his feet for so long ago or not so long a time ago? What idol, what thing? And then having identified what that thing is, then I need to repent of that evil that has gotten between me and my relationship with Jesus, whatever that thing might be. And then I need to return to giving the word of God the place that it once had in my life. Daily devotions, study of the word on my own. And then attending Bible studies. And then six, to do, to, and, and to do this whether my flesh likes to do it or not. But to do it because it is the right thing to do. And because the God that we worship is worthy of that kind of honor and he's worthy of that kind of respect and attention. And then I think it's helpful to then engage in a little bit of spiritual exercise to develop a spiritual appetite. Staying in fellowship with other Christians, beginning Christian service in some way, serving other people. And it's amazing how as we do that, it develops a spiritual appetite for the word of God. And then we hunger for that, uh, that word in a greater measure. I think these are helpful things at returning from that kind of a condition. Peter instructs us that times of suffering and trial and difficulty in the Christian life are to be times of growth. And one of the ways that we grow is to go deeper and deeper into the things of the Lord. Because we realize when we hit this trial and it comes into our lives, we realize, all right, the relationship that I've had with Christ up to this point is not deep enough for what I'm facing today. My knowledge of the scriptures up to this point is not enough for what I'm facing after that doctor appointment. And it's a time to go deep, deep, deeper in the relationship with God. And by virtue of that, deeper in God's word, it's a time for more time in God's word, not a time for less. And that's the truth that Peter speaks to us here concerning the word of God. 
How many people take it seriously anymore or care about this kind of thing anymore? I don't know. But everybody has a right to hear it. And everybody has a right to know the truth about how high the bar is raised related to the place of the Word of God and a person that calls themselves a Christian and how important it is to our health and to our growth as Christians. How many churches today abandoning the teaching of the Word of God has been going on for my whole Christian life since 1980? And when you abandon an emphasis upon the Word of God in a church, you can't tell me that the people in their private lives are going to maintain that if that's not modeled as an emphasis from the pulpit. And if we move away, so often I know because I sit where you sit often enough. There's a tendency to look at a sermon like this this morning and say, well, that's just what preachers say. It's just another sermon on the Word of God. This is what they're supposed to say. This is what they get paid to say. It's a good thing. They ought to say it. It's very important that this be said and be, we be reminded of all of this. And it's easy to listen and listen and listen and listen and never have it make a dent or a change in my life related to the place of the Word of God in our lives. If we ever move away from the vitality of understanding how significant the Word of God is in the life of a Christian, we are absolutely doomed. Every Christian church will be completely absorbed by the world. Every individual Christian will be ultimately absorbed by the world. It's the pattern over and over again. You've seen it for yourself if you haven't experienced it yourself. To move away from the Word of God and distance, distance, distance. The next time you run into that person, you can't believe they sat in church with you. You can't believe they left the relationship with God that they had for the life that they're living right now. But it happened. And it happened because of a neglect of the Word of God in the context of a personal relationship with God. So in our own lives, I know how easy it is to sit and to say, listen, that's great. That's a good sermon on the Word. It needs to be taught. We pay preachers to do that kind of thing and to be far away from the Word of God having that kind of an impact upon my life personally and then to leave this place under the weight of the Word of God and make absolutely no change at all. And that's why I have, for those of you who come here regularly, I have no need or within me to beat people up. And I know how easy it is to beat people up in the area of prayer, in the area of the Word of God in their lives. And I learned a long time ago that you will never, ever change this in a person's life 
by condemning them or yelling at them or beating them up. But I also know how important it is to raise the standard. And then to say, God, maybe you were in this sermon this morning. Maybe you had this passage where you could literally go in 20 different directions with this passage. But maybe you took it here. Because you're alarmed at what you see in this local body. Or what you see as a beginning trend in an individual life that is in need of rescue this morning from going down a path that ends disastrously as you've seen over and over and over again in 2,000 years of human history. And I pray for those of us in the room today where you say, I've never known, never heard such a thing, the devotional life with God spent in the Word. I can read the Bible myself and learn it and study it and commune with God in it. I just pray that as you pick up one of those daily breads and you begin that tomorrow morning, that God will just be so powerful in your life as you begin that and you experience the glory of that, that that will become your necessary bread for the rest of your Christian life. And then for those of us in the room today where we once knew that, but we have moved from that, we've got every kind of excuse that we can throw at the clear teaching of the Word of God, I pray that God will destroy every idol in your life. Every single thing you have sold out your relationship with him for. I pray he knocks every one of them out of our hands. Until Jesus has the place in our lives that he deserves and that he paid for in his own blood. Because that's what the Christian life is. To miss the relationship is to miss everything. And the word of God is a key to that relationship. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your Holy Spirit and the Apostle Peter, of the great and wonderful, beautiful place that your word played in our salvation. Thank you for your word. Thank you for that salvation. And we thank you too, Lord, for the reminder from your word of the necessity to go deeper and deeper in your word in order to grow into the fullness of what you have brought us into as Christians, the fullness of that life and the Christ-likeness that is found there, the fullness of that relationship. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to hold it in our hands. Thank you for the privilege of being able to own a book like this and the privilege of being able to read it every day and the privilege of being joined by you in that reading, Lord, and in that fellowship as we do. We thank you for how rich you have made us because of our Savior 
and because of your word. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.